This summer, we're studying the book of Exodus. This is the story of Israel's liberation from oppression and the lasting effects of that oppression on a people who struggle to be truly free. So far in the story, we've been introduced to the king of Egypt who oppresses and enslaves the Israelites. But a group of women resist with civil disobedience. Midwives and mothers refuse to follow unjust laws and save the life of a boy named Moses. Moses grows up as Egyptian royalty. Moses flees to the desert after killing a slave master. While in the desert, Moses notices a burning bush. When he leaves his job to go investigate the bush, God speaks to him and tells him, God's name is, I will be who I will be. God then sends Moses to Egypt to free the Israelites. And since Moses is insecure about public speaking, God sends Moses' brother Aaron to go with him. Moses also brings his wife and son to Egypt, but on the way, God threatens to kill Moses because Moses has not circumcised his son. But Moses' wife Zipporah circumcises their son. This saves Moses' life and demonstrates that God blesses a foreign woman when she performs the duties of a priest. The family arrives in Egypt, and that brings us to our scripture today. Exodus 5, 1 through 9, first meeting with Pharaoh. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to the Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, Israel's God, says. Let my people go so that they can hold a festival for me in the desert. But Pharaoh said, Who is this Lord who I am supposed to obey by letting Israel go? I don't know this Lord, and I certainly won't let Israel go. Then they said, The Hebrews' God has appeared to us. Let us go on a three-day journey into the desert so we can offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. Otherwise, the Lord will give us a deadly disease or violence. The king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why are you making the people slack off from their work? Do the hard work yourselves, Pharaoh continued. The land's people are numerous now, yet you want them to stop their hard work? On the very same day, Pharaoh commanded the people's slave masters and supervisors, Don't supply the people with the straw they need to make bricks like you did before. Let them go out and gather the straw for themselves, but still make sure that they produce the same number of bricks as they made before. Don't reduce the number. They are weak and lazy, and that's why they cry, let's go and offer sacrifices to our God. Make the men's work so hard that it's all they can do, and they can't focus on these empty lies. This is the word of the Lord. Well, things do not seem to be going quite as smoothly as Moses had hoped. Moses had been faithful. He left his comfortable life and returned to Egypt to challenge the oppressive king. Moses demanded freedom for his people. But his fight for justice has made life worse for everyone. And, and that might feel a little surprising in a story of liberation. 
But Exodus is not only the story of God's faithfulness. It's also the story of how oppressive systems maintain control and how we follow God when those oppressive systems overwhelm us. And Exodus 5, it shows us exactly what we're up against. Now, this story is about a pharaoh who lived 3,000 years ago, but his actions might look familiar because he's providing something like a master class in how the powerful make us believe we're powerless. When the chapter starts, everything is clear. Pharaoh's the bad guy. He oppresses people. God is good. God liberates people. This is why Moses has come to Egypt. So, this will be the first thing the Pharaoh must address. And he does this by questioning God's authority. Who is this Lord that I am supposed to obey? Pharaoh basically says, why should I, the most powerful king in the world, obey some foreign god I've never heard of? Why should any of us trust that a foreign god knows how things are done around here? You know, and it's, it's clever. Pharaoh's not denying that people are upset. He's just questioning how it's possible that some unknown God could provide a solution. And, and this, this actually seems to be the first line of defense for systemic injustice. Acknowledge the problem, but discredit any outside solution. Right, and then provide an alternative explanation for why the system isn't working. As Pharaoh explains, yes, the people do cry out for justice, but it's not because they're overworked. They, they're not oppressed like you think. They are weak and lazy, and that's why they cry out. Let's go and offer sacrifices to our God. Blame the people whom the system is exploiting. Claim they're not working hard enough. Claim the system actually provides opportunity. They're just not taking advantage of it. They just need to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Blame the system. Rather, don't blame the system. Blame the people whom the system is exploiting. And that works well when the system silences those it blames. Like in Exodus 5, where, where the voice of the oppressed is glaringly absent. In, in this short little chapter, we hear from Pharaoh, from the slave masters, the Israel's, Israelite supervisors, from Moses, Aaron, and God, everyone has the opportunity to speak about the conditions of the people, except the people who are being accused of laziness. And, and this tactic gives Pharaoh the opportunity to control the narrative, and it justifies what he'll do next. Punish the people for challenging him. Pharaoh requires that the Israelites produce bricks without the straw that they need to make the bricks. 
And this, this functions like a warning that if anyone works for reform, everyone will suffer. And this also scares people into thinking that, that their life could never be better than it is now and tells them, so, so don't mess with the system. It's, it's a reminder of who has the power and what happens if you bite the hand that feeds you. This sort of keeps the people at bay, keeps them scared, but it does something else. It turns the oppressed against one another by essentially saying that the people who claim to be working for justice are actually making your oppression worse. Pharaoh pulls this off beautifully by putting a small group of Israelites in charge of other slaves. This is as chapter 5 continues. And then when the Israelites fail to meet Pharaoh's impossible demands, Pharaoh gathers up these Israelite supervisors and beats them for being lazy. So then these supervisors go to Moses and said, Moses, you are making our oppression worse. Everything that Moses has done seems to be failing. Because Moses demanded justice, God's name has been dragged through the mud. The people have been blamed, oppression has gotten worse, and now everyone is mad at Moses, who in turn questions God. And this, this is how chapter 5 ends, with Moses crying out to God. My Lord, why have you abused this people? Why did you send me for this? Ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has abused this people, and you have done absolutely nothing to rescue your people. Things are not looking good, which is what happens when we challenge systemic injustice. That, that's sort of the point of this chapter, is that the pursuit of God's justice is a lot harder than we expect, certainly than Moses expected. Moses thought this would be quick and easy. It, it, in that last quote, that last scripture, it makes it clear that Moses expected God to do all the work of rescuing the people. But that's not what happened. And that's not what happens next. In, in chapter 6, God doesn't swoop down and take control, nor actually does God seem upset with Moses for accusing God of abusing the people. It's like, it's as if God knew this was coming. These next two chapters reveal a different kind of response. In chapter 6, God reminds Moses what happened at the burning bush. It, it's like a reset where God sort of goes through the, the call narrative of Moses again and tells Moses to stand up to the Pharaoh. Moses brings this to the people who, who don't believe it. So Moses objects to God, but God reassures and Moses is again set on his way to challenge the Pharaoh. Then in chapter 7, 
God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And this might be troubling because it seems like God is controlling Pharaoh like a puppet, then is about to send plagues to punish Pharaoh for how he acts. But that's not quite it. Because in because uh, Pharaoh is always given a choice, both before and after Pharaoh's heart is hardened, Pharaoh is given the option to turn from evil. And, and because this is pretty confusing, I called my bestie, Ryan, the biblical scholar, to ask what's going on. And he, he explained to me that this language is borrowed from Egyptian religion, and, and particularly in Egyptian religion, it it describes judgment, like judgment if you go to the underworld, but it doesn't describe determinism, the idea of a heart being heavy or a heart being hardened. So God doesn't control Pharaoh like a puppet. Pharaoh is more like the captain of a boat who's ignored God's warning is now and is now caught up in this fast moving water that's headed towards a waterfall. So when God declares that Pharaoh's heart has been hardened, it's, it's the judgment of the eventual outcome. God can see, God knows the outcome. But how they get there, how long it takes, well, that's yet to be determined. That's up to Moses and Pharaoh and the people. And, and I think that, that that is a helpful way for us to understand both this section of Exodus and our own struggle for justice. It is a struggle, even for God. There will be disappointment and failure, because the pharaohs of our world will not give up power easily. A hardened heart will do everything it can to make us question our pursuit of justice. And, and in the midst of it, like when it's hard and when we're discouraged, God's not going to come in and fix everything with a magical flick of the wrist. But what we see here is that God is unwavering. God is confident of the outcome. And God is with us to reassure us and remind us that we have a part in God's struggle for liberation. Amen.